Good evening to you. Book of Matthew, chapter 5 tonight. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you get their attention, they'll give you a Bible. And it'll be marked to our passage that we're studying tonight for your convenience. And please, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours as a gift uh, from God. The Sermon on the Mount, as we uh, began to study it last week, it teaches us how we are to conduct ourselves as Jesus' disciples in a way that represents Jesus. And uh, Jesus is different than anyone or anything in human history. And uh, he has, we've been born again into the kingdom of God. And so with that privilege, we also have the responsibility of properly representing that kingdom before the world. And, uh, and, and, and Jesus has a way that that's supposed to happen that makes us different than everyone else, everything else in the world, even religious people and, and uh, secular people. And so this is the instruction. And the last point that we kind of left off uh, on in, in looking at this, Jesus declared that he did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. And indeed he didn't. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets uh, concerning himself and his relationship with the law and the prophets. But he also, in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, is declaring the fact that he calls us as his disciples to live a life that is even more demanding in terms of righteousness than the demands of the law and the prophets. Basically, the Old Testament... Those laws had principally to do with a person's outward actions. And uh, the law was good as far as it went. It produced people that lived outwardly uh, good lives. But Jesus says now concerning my kingdom, it isn't enough just to live an outwardly righteous life, but it needs, there also needs to be an inwardly righteous life as well. That righteous life needs to come out of a holy and a righteous motivation. So Jesus is interested not only in our outward living, but also in our inward attitudes and all that he sees. And the Holy Spirit is inside of us, so he's affected by what we are on the inside. So he wants a kingdom of people who are righteous both outwardly and inwardly. And that's what he comes to now in his sermon where he has these series of six, you have heard it said, quoting something from the Old Testament, but now I say unto you, quote, something from the Old Testament, some demand, a commandment from the Old Testament in terms of outward righteousness, and then he declares how he calls us as his disciples to live something that is even more righteous than the demands of the Old uh, Testament because our privileges and our blessings that we have, Holy Spirit and uh, new creation and, and the spiritual birth and all in our lives, we have privileges that uh, the saints under the Old Covenant did not have. So he begins here in verse uh, uh, 20, uh, 21. 
And he says, you have, heard, uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And so he quotes from the Ten Commandments here. So he's quoting uh, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, clearly declared, you shall not murder. Wonderful law, isn't it? Anybody have a beef with that? No, it's a tremendous law. We want it to be in human history. It's a, that, that commandment of the Old Testament, of the Ten Commandments, is on us still as Christians. So nothing wrong with that as far as it went. But then Jesus takes it even further. Not only are we not to murder, but he goes on to say, and, and here you see the contrast, verse 21, you have heard that it was said, quoting the Old Testament, and then now in verse 22, but I say to you now, for us as Christians, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Let's stop for a moment, talk about being angry with our brother without a cause. There is an anger in life uh, that is a righteous anger. Not all anger is sinful. So when Jesus cleansed the temple twice in his uh, public ministry, one at the beginning of his public ministry, one later in his public ministry, he was incensed at how God the Father was being misrepresented by the money-making machine that the Jewish religious leaders had turned Judaism into at the temple. That was a righteous anger. A righteous anger is when I am become incensed or angry about uh, some sin that is being committed against another person or against God. So there is a righteous anger, but even that needs to be um, represented or expressed in a proper way. And, and so here he's not talking about that kind of an anger. He's talking about an anger that isn't a righteous anger, an anger without a cause. And this is, uh, this is talking about selfish anger. Most anger that I, I would venture to guess, um, I won't say concerning all of us, but I would say the majority of the anger we experience, even as Christians, is not a righteous anger. We get angry because someone stepped on our toes. Somehow the big I, me, my got offended or got disrespected or whatever it might be. And that's, now that's a sinful anger. That's not something where uh, I'm concerned about somebody else or somebody else being hurt or God's reputation being damaged in any way. So I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, uh, empty-headed shall be in danger of the council being brought before the Jewish council because of uh, something that will come out of that, some action. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So we see an escalation here. And he says, all right, the Old Testament declared that we were, are not to murder. But he then addresses in us the issue of anger. Anger is at the core of probably most murder. I suppose that if, um, if you were, uh, I guess if you're in law enforcement or you're in the judicial system, or I'm sure there's studies on all of this to find out how much murder occurs as a result of anger that suddenly flashes. It's not premeditated murder. It is just murder where someone says, well, you're raka, you're empty-headed. Oh, yeah, well, you're, you're a fool. And then uh, 90 seconds later, somebody's dead in the kitchen. 
And, uh, and that's how there's an escalation in what's going on here in the situation. And so Jesus addresses uh, the sin that is at the core of murder and says, let's get to the root of where most murder comes from, and I don't want you even to be angry uh, without a cause. And so he then tells us, therefore, uh, dealing with this issue practically of anger in our lives, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, for instance, you come to a church service like Sunday night tonight, you've come in to worship the Lord, the gift that you're giving at the altar is your worship and your praise to the Lord. So you come in here to the church service, and while you're worshiping the Lord, you remember that your brother has something against you. There's a lot of people can have a lot of things against you, and it's, um, it's their own kind of, um, uh, you know, their own problems sometimes. Here it's talking about where you're worshiping the Lord, and as you're worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit, or maybe it's just your own consciences, all of this is going on. You're in the presence of the Lord as church service, and you become aware all of a sudden of the fact that, wow, I What I did there was sin against that brother. And and you hadn't given any thought to it at all. And then now you become aware of that. And see, that sin now has the potential for causing anger in their life and uh, becoming bitter over that and ultimately escalating into something that, uh, an action that someone might regret. So he says, if you're worshiping or anywhere and you realize, wow, I have sinned against another brother, they have something against me legitimately. I did them wrong, uh, whether in deed or in word or whatever it might be. Jesus said, leave your gift there at the altar. I mean, it's almost, leave the worship service almost here. Go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so Jesus very strongly but very practically speaks about our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. When we become aware of, wow, I, I did them wrong and that has the potential to produce anger in their life that they're going to end up living with or they're going to have to deal with, that we're to be proactive related to that. Go to them, confess it as sin, ask for their forgiveness, take that out of their heart, and then come back and worship uh, the Lord. And sometimes it's, it's, oh, it's interesting because sometimes we can look and we did something wrong to somebody and the Holy Spirit will bring it to our remembrance and then we'll talk ourselves out of it in three minutes. We said, it was so long ago, surely they've forgotten. (laughs) Do you forget? Oh, no, we remember. And then when somebody comes and says, man, I missed the mark so bad there, and I'm so sorry that I'm so late in even giving it to you, and you ever had to deal with this, what I brought into your life here on this, would you forgive me? And out comes the anger in their heart. And so we have a part not only related to our own hearts, keeping it free of anger, but then being proactive in that way toward our brothers as well. Then he talks about a second scenario, and and one is kind of our brothers, and this one speaks of an adversary. Agree with your adversary. This is someone who you've sinned against who's not a Christian. They are um, secular, and uh, you've done wrong to them, and and what are they going to do there? 
They're not going to sit on it or whatever. They're going to take you to court over the issue. And so here is your adversary, and uh, you've done something wrong to him. He's going to take you to court now. This is how he's going to express his anger against you. And says, go agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. I mean, going to your court date, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. And so he's just saying that wherever there is a cause, we have created a cause for anger in somebody else, to deal with it decisively, deal with it quickly, not only in our own hearts, but also in the hearts of, of others, whether Christian or non-Christians. And he said, assuredly, if, if we don't deal with it in that way, humble ourselves. Sometimes it can be humbling. Here I am. I'm known as the Christian at work. I'm known as the Christian at school. I'm supposed to live a higher standard than everyone else. I blew it in that situation. And, you know, you've got to eat crow. And, and we've got to humble ourselves and then go to a person that doesn't know the Lord yet. We knew better, all of that kind of thing, but it still needs to be done. It's always good for us when we do it. We'll be, less, we'll be more hesitant to ever do that again, uh, won't we? Nobody likes to do that over and over again. But the importance of doing it, addressing anger, assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. And so the importance of... Uh, uh, of addressing that uh, that issue of anger. And then he moves on to a second one. You have heard it said, uh, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And so here is the um, prohibition from the law of Moses and very, very clear prohibition uh, against adultery. The law of Moses uh, taught, again, from the Ten Commandments. It's the seventh of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not commit adultery. Again, a, wonder, again, a wonderful law, a needed law. Imagine if the law, if thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery, weren't commandments from God in human history. I mean, what would the condition of the world be like? So it's terrific as far as uh, it goes, no doubt about it. But then Jesus takes it even further for us as Christians. He said, but I say to you, and again, it's the contrast. You have heard it said, but I say to you, here's the higher standard. It's not just enough to be outwardly, outwardly righteous in terms of not committing the outward act of adultery. I want to deal with purity in your heart as well. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery within his heart. And so the prohibition against looking at someone and lusting for them uh, sexually there and, uh, and, and in the, uh, so the, the desire and the power of the Spirit to live a life that is, is pure not only on the outside but also on the inside. And this is significant because a person can live a, a life of obedience to thou shalt not commit adultery, never commit the physical act of adultery with another person, and yet they can be absolutely defiled inwardly, dominated by uh, sexual lust on the inside. And I don't know how much... Uh, I remember when I was a young boy growing up, and uh, we'd probably... Uh, put our eyes where we shouldn't or whatever this, but in those days, people used to, whether they were relatives or not, used to say something to you. It wasn't unusual for an older man to say, hey, get your mind out of the gutter. 
How do you know? So we can, we can live a life where outwardly we're not living our life in the gutter, but inwardly we're living a life in the gutter. And Jesus calls us that he wants the outward purity, but the inward purity as well. And, of course, this relates to uh, both of the sexes. He gives some very practical instruction for how to live this kind of life in the Spirit. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin in this way, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell over lust. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And the point is, is that if there's anything in our lives that is drawing us into a life of lust or a life of inward sexual impurity, no matter how valuable that thing is to us, no matter what it is worth, we are to get rid of it from our lives. And so in those days, the right hand and the right eye uh, represented what was most uh, valued and most treasured uh, of the hand and of the eye. And so it represented our best. Even today we say, oh, I'd give my right arm to be able to do that again. And we say our right arm because most of us are right-handed. We're saying I'd give my best arm in order to have a chance to handle that situation uh, different. And this is communicating the same thing that we would be willing and instructed to get rid of anything from our lives that draws us into a life of inward impurity sexually. Um, I don't need to tell uh, most of us. It's very, very depressing, by the way. The, the uh, statistics in terms of pornography... Uh, viewing, pornography addiction, not only among uh, males, but also now increasingly among females. It is epidemic within our culture. And so the need to look at our homes, what's in our homes, what do we own? I just paid, you know, X amount of money for that particular thing in my house or that movie or this deal or this appliance or this monitor or whatever it might be. But if it is continually being used to draw me into a sexually impure life on the inside, however valuable it is, out it goes. And, and there has to be that strong desire to say, all right, I want to, I want to live this life that Christ has for me. And on a practical level, I'm going to get rid of anything from my life, no matter how valuable it is, that is, is drawing me toward uh, sexual lust. Now, it's very, very important to understand that what Jesus is saying here, and in, in, he's, he's not saying that this is to be taken literally. Nobody's supposed to cut off their right hand and nobody's to pluck out their right eye. You can pluck out your right eye and still lust like crazy. So you've got a left eye. still have a left hand. So that's what he's talking about. And, uh, and, and so it, it, the whole idea is we're to show no mercy to anything in our lives that would stir or provoke a lust-filled heart in our lives. When he talks about being cast into hell there, I think that uh, Jesus seems to be saying that the person who's unwilling to repent of their sexually immoral life or 
their lust-dominated life. In other words, they're not willing to make a sacrifice that's needed to live a sexually pure life. That person needs to really double-check whether they are truly born again. And so uh, with it, uh, there, there should be that desire. The Holy Spirit will give us the will to do it and the power to do it of his good pleasure. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That's why he says, man, cut everything off. Now, sometimes we think, well, here we are. We're living in the year 2015, and we've got this just this technological, um, you know, um, access to an unbelievable world of immorality. Uh, But Rome was no walk in the park for a Christian. And so they didn't have electronics, but the accessibility of sin, the accessibility of sexual immorality and and inward impurity, uh, it was a very, very tough environment even in the ancient world. God is greater than all of these things uh, within, within our lives. And so in the law, no adultery. Jesus says not only no adultery, but no lust, the sin from which adultery flows. He gets to the root of the issue. Then he moves on to speak about divorce. Furthermore, it has been said, now quoting the Old Testament, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, the higher standard, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality. That's interesting. That's the stand, the body of Christ, except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And so uh, he quotes Jesus does from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And the law said you could not divorce your wife uh, except that you gave her a certificate of divorce. And the grounds for divorce, for the giving the certificate of divorce, was finding some form of uncleanness in uh, her. When a man takes a wife, marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, when she's departed from the house and goes to become another man's wife, so forth, she cannot remarry the former husband. But So if he found some uncleanness in her, divorced her, it was always to be done with a writing of of a, a, a certificate of divorce. That was uh, the, the requirement. Well, the Jewish rabbis began to work on that particular commandment, and they thought to themselves, well, if divorce is only allowed for some uncleanness, then we ought to get our heads together and define what uncleanness is so we can have a clear understanding of what the grounds are for divorce uh, under the law. And at the time of Jesus, there were two prevailing views of what that uncleanness was, two prevailing uh, interpretations, one very, very liberal, one very, very conservative. Uh, One famous first century rabbi by the name of Shammai, he interpreted the law very, very conservatively, and, uh, and he interpreted uncleanness to refer to adultery or sexual immorality alone. And uh, that if a man discovered that his wife had committed adultery, then he was free to divorce her and remarry. There was another famous first century rabbi by the name of Hillel, and he interpreted this very, very liberally, this uncleanness. And he determined that uncleanness was anything that displeased the husband. That's fairly broad. And... uh, 
Thus, he could divorce his wife for virtually anything. If he became displeased with her looks, if he became displeased with her cooking, she put too much salt on his eggs. After all, she would have assaulted him as a result here. If she made himself, if she made him unhappy in any way, certainly if she was unable um, to bear children for him, then this was brought under Hillel, the whole idea that uh, this is an uncleanness and the freedom now uh, to divorce and remarry. If he, if he decided that her personality, her emotional makeup, her intellectual makeup had changed and was no longer pleasing to him, then these were all uh, uh, the uh, grounds for divorce under Hillel. And as you might imagine, that liberal view of Hillel ended up prevailing and it became the most popular of the two interpretations of the law of Moses, and it resulted in divorce occurring for any and, and every kind of selfish reason, not unlike uh, today. And that's kind of the backdrop to Jesus' teaching here. Just easy divorces. Everybody just being uh, more concerned about doing it right. Did, did we, is, is the divorce final and, and is it a legal thing? And was it put in her hand? Was it put in his hand? The certificate of divorce rather than what is a legitimate reason in God's eyes for a divorce to occur. And Jesus' instruction to us in uh, uh, verse 33 or uh, verse 32, he said, But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any other reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits uh, adultery. And so we are not to divorce our spouses for any other reason than sexual immorality. Um, the subject is a little bit broader than that. Um, and uh, a, a a unbelieving husband or wife can leave another Christian because of their faith and remarry, and a, and a, and a, that a Christian is uh, is free to remarry. But in general, this is m- most marriages do not end on the basis of that. Um, and so Jesus comes in and says, "We are not to divorce for any other reason than sexual immorality." So the the gist of the teaching that Jesus is giving here for us, in terms of our attitude as Christians, is what is our attitude toward this institution of God called marriage? And Jesus wants us as Christians to have the highest regard for marriage of all of the people in the world. Of all of the, I don't care if they're Muslims or Sikhs or Hindus or whoever or whatever they might be, secularists, atheists, agnostics, no one in the world is to have a higher view of marriage in the whole world than Christians. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I do not want my followers, my kingdom, I do not want my children to be known in the world as being playing fast and loose with this institution of marriage. I want people to look at Christianity and say, that is a group of people who have the highest regard of any people in the world for that institution of uh, marriage. And then to model that uh, that respect for the institution by staying committed to our marriages. And so I don't need to tell you what a mess our world is, our country is today, related to this area of 
divorce and remarriage, the price. It, it, this issue alone, I've said it for 20 years. It, it, will, it will bankrupt this country. And it, it, if, you, if you got the statistics in this county, in this state, and in this country of the amount of money that is poured out into situations that have come about because of divorce, the breakup of the family unit, the money is astronomical. No country in the world is rich enough to redefine, to play fast and loose with marriage, redefine marriage, and there's not enough money to then pour into and solve the problems that come out of it. And we're just, we're just beginning to begin to understand uh, that as, as a culture. Immediately, I remember years ago, I read an article in the Atlantic, uh, I think it was the Atlantic Monthly, and, um, and they, did, they did this. And every so often, I don't read it that often, but every so often I, I stumble upon an article by them that has something to do with moral or spiritual issues that way. And it talked about what happens to the children, the average child or the average wife that happens following a divorce. In the United States of America, it's something like 80, 90 percent instantly into poverty level. Their life is changed in a second based upon that one thing that has happened. And now they're going to fight for survival for the rest of uh, the wife, sometimes for the rest of her life, and the children for the rest of their childhood. And so it's, you, the, the, the statistics are very, very um, uh, discouraging, very, very sobering and all. I think about how it must break the heart of Jesus and and uh, uh, concerning all of that, to see how much is going on, how uh, casual we've become about all of this, and then turn our eye to the casualties related to um, that, that so often uh, uh, follows all of that. The interesting thing, and I think the thing that has to be heartbreaking, most heartbreaking in light of this teaching uh, of Jesus, is that George Barna, the last statistics that I saw related to all of this, he reported that the divorce rate among Christians, Christians who call themselves conservative, that's how they identify themselves, that among Christians in the United States who identify themselves as conservative, the divorce rate among those Christians is significantly higher than for other faith groups and religions. Muslims stay in their marriages more than Christians do. Hindus do, Buddhists do, right on around and around and around. The very thing that Jesus does not want Christianity to be known for, we've become known for among the religions of the world. And then the interesting thing to realize, and again heartbreaking, is that the divorce rate among Christians who call themselves conservative in the United States of America is higher than even those who identify themselves as agnostic and atheist. Heavy. It's heavy. And sometimes divorces occur, as we're talking in this room, a lot of things are going on, a lot of things are in this room, a lot of life history, a lot of life experience, a lot of divorces end not because both partners wanted them to end. There's victims on these different sides. There are legitimate reasons that marriages do come to an end. But the very thing that Jesus does not want 
us to be known for as Christians representing him in the world as a casual attitude toward uh, divorce and all. Uh, unfortunately, we are very much known for that uh, in the Western world. And it's a good thing to think about. I mean, there have been a handful of times through the years where we have had as a church, we ha- it, it was necessary for us to step in in a marriage that was unbiblical, that was occurring. Let's say the husband is divorcing her for no biblical reasons at all. He just wants to get on with the next thing in his life or the next relationship in his life. And we have to step in and talk about the fact that there's no biblical grounds here. How can we help you reconcile? God wants a happy ending to all of this. God is able to do a miracle. And believe me, God does miracles in marriages every single day. And we step in. The guy digs in. We're forced then to uh, enact church discipline against him. And if you think Christians respect what we do in being obedient to the Word of God... You're dreaming. You have your head in a hole in the ground. We become the enemy of everyone. I, I, would, I would love to know the number of people who have left this church over the period of 30 years over just those handful of situations that we've had to address. You think Christians have a high view of marriage? Not all of them do. And it's very sad to be confronted with it. Important in the hour in which we live. God restores me marriages. These, sometimes the, these, you know, I'm so carnal. When something gets hard, my first thing is to escape, to try and get out of something. And I can be trying to get out of something that's the very best thing for me. And these restrictions that God places upon us will keep us in something that God knows he's going to make beautiful if everyone will listen to him and obey him in the situation. And so, anyway, it's a, it's a timely word. And again, you have heard it said, he says in verse 33, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths before the Lord. And so he quotes from the Old Testament here what the law of Moses taught, uh, quoting two verses from the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 19, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, the Lord declared. And Deuteronomy 23, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. And so what the, the two laws required in the Old Testament that was that his people were not to swear or give their promise to do something if they had no intention of doing it. And then second, if we do commit to do something, then we were, they were obligated to do that. Again, that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful law as far as it went, no doubt about it. And uh, God gave these commandments and uh, obviously with the intention of producing this his people being known in the world for producing integrity, that these are people who are uh, true to their word. And uh, what the Jewish religious leaders did with those commandments, and again, the monkey business that sometimes religious people will do, 
over time, they took a special look at that phrase, uh, to the Lord, in Deuteronomy 23. When you make a vow uh, to the Lord your God, you shall not delay uh, to pay it. And they determined that any oath made in the name of the Lord was absolutely binding. It had to be kept without exception. And when I say, I swear to the Lord that I'm going to do such and such for you, and the reason is because that oath meant that the speaker was calling upon God to be a witness to the vow and then to punish him if he didn't uh, keep the vow. But then they determined that if you gave your word to someone and you swore by someone or something other than the Lord, I swear by my mother's honor, I swear by my father's grave or whatever, then that wasn't necessarily binding because uh, you didn't, uh, that promise you didn't have to be quite as uh, conscious of in terms of keeping because you didn't make the promise in the name of the Lord. And so these games were being played related to, um, you know, uh, the oaths and what, what was being spoken. And then the Lord says, but here for us as Christians, but I say to you, don't even swear at all, neither by heaven nor by God's throne, nor by the earth. No, I swear to God or I swear by the throne of God. I swear by heaven. I swear by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair uh, white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so here is this uh, call on us. We're not to swear at all. We are everyday word. When we say, I'm going to do that, uh, then that is, to be, uh, that is to be as binding upon us in our hearts as, um, as if we had made a vow. And so that the idea is Jesus says, I want my people to be known around the world that when they give you their word, they are going to keep their word. And that's what he wants his kingdom be, to be known for. And that's our responsibility uh, in, in uh, a, a part of all of that. And it's, that's, uh, that's just our simple word is to be that good. And when Jesus says, for whatever is more than these is of the evil one, in other words, all of this lying under the guise of a technicality, and did you swear to God or did you swear by your mother's grave or whatever, he's saying none of that comes from God. All of that has its origin uh, in the devil. Now, it does not mean that we cannot take an oath in a public kind of, uh, of, of setting here. And, uh, and so this applies to our personal life, but Jesus isn't uh, pro, uh, prohibiting us as Christians from taking an oath to testify in a court of law, taking an oath of office if we've been elected into uh, some political office, or taking an oath that's required in order to be a juror. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 26, he testified under oath before the high priest. And so it's an extraordinary situation in, in our, the daily of life, no taking of oaths where it's required in a public kind of setting. We have complete freedom uh, to do that. And so God wants us to be the most honest, trustworthy people in all of the world because all of it reflects back upon him. He said um, in verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Is that in the Bible? Just see that. Yeah, it is. It's right there. 
How many of you got that underlined in your Bible? Not that underlinable, is it? But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn your other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. This passage is very, very well known, if for no other reason that it supplied us with uh, in, in our culture with several very, very well-known statements that are often quoted by people that don't know they come from the Bible at all. For instance, we've heard of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, that comes from the Bible. Uh, turning the other cheek, it comes from Jesus' teaching right here. Going the extra mile comes right out of this verse within the Bible. Now, the law of Moses taught... And Jesus is quoting uh, from this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He, quote, he could quote from one of three passages in the Old Testament, from Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy chapter 19. It was repeated over and over again in the Old Testament uh, that uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Absolutely vital to understand the context of this commandment. Now, if you think, okay, now he's getting into minutiae that's a little more than I care to really understand, it's important here. Here's a passage where the temptation would be to really gloss over it and get moving on to something else, except so many questions on a practical nature where somebody looks at these verses and say, I want to take this seriously how much stuff do I give away when the guy asks me for it? I mean, how does this fit in the nitty-gritty of everyday life? And so we've got to take a look at this just a, a, a little bit. Important to understand the context of this commandment, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In all three cases in which it's quoted in the Old Testament, this commandment was given not to individuals, but it was given to magistrates. It was given to judges, the equivalent of our judicial system. Only they were free to mete out this judgment after they had very carefully and dispassionately discovered the facts of the case and then took a look at the law of Moses, how does the law of Moses apply to this, and then to apply the proper justice uh, to the crime related to the case. The commandment was never given to the individual. The Old Testament law never allowed an individual to take the law into their own hands, become the judge and the jury and the executioner. The reason that this law was given, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, people look at it and say, you know, if it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, then we'll all end up blind. And it's like, please. Who did you hear that from and think about it a little bit here? This was very, very wise in terms of what God was saying in, in the Old Testament law. And so the threefold purpose of the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was the law of Moses had been given in order to prevent personal retaliation, to prevent people from taking the law into their own hands and then applying it personally. A crime has been committed against them, and so they decide, all right, you do that to me, then I'm going to do this to you. And under that, uh, it, the emotional uh, 
uh, fervor of the situation that they're in. They end up doing something way beyond what the other person deserves for their wrongdoing, and now they're guilty of an even greater crime or even greater wrongdoing. And so it was to protect individuals from doing something in their flesh that they would ultimately regret themselves. The law was also given in order to protect against sentences that were too lenient. So the punishment was to be an eye for an eye, not a tooth for an eye. If the punishments are too lenient within a culture, then there's no deterrent to crime. And then what ends up happening is the criminal then rules society, and then all of the law-abiding citizens are living in fear for their life and for their safety. That's because a judicial system has gotten things out of whack on things. And this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, kept things in its proper place. People knew that justice was even-handed. And so whatever you did to somebody else, that would be done back to you, and you would end up getting a taste of your own medicine, and uh, it was a strong deterrent to crime. And then third, the law was given to protect against sentences that were too harsh. And so, again, justice was to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, not an eye for a tooth. And uh, so the punishment was never to exceed uh, the seriousness of the crime. And all of this, of course, is a wonderful and a needed law. Jesus isn't criticizing it in any way. He's just simply saying he's calling us to something higher in our own lives, a higher law, higher way of living, and a harder way of living in terms of our own personal lives. So he's not putting down government, not putting down law and order, policemen, armies, judges, courts, all of these kind of things. All of these things are needed in a fallen world. He speaks about them. Uh, God does very favorably in the New Testament in uh, Romans chapter 13, if you want to take a look at that. The higher standard that he calls us to as his disciples there in verses 32, uh, 39 through 42, you notice he says, But I tell uh, you, now he speaks to us as Christians, concerning our personal lives. Uh, he is not speaking to the governments or the legal systems of the world. He's talking to us as individual Christians. And in our personal lives, we are not to live life on the level of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, giving people exactly what they deserve, returning to people exactly what they have done to us. Because while it is just, it does not properly and fully represent the God that we represent. Because the God that we're representing before the world is both just and merciful. So for us to represent him properly, we must be both just and also merciful. And so Jesus then proceeds to give us these five situations that occur in life all of the time and how we're to respond to them on a higher level than uh, justice or an eye for an eye as citizens of his kingdom. Notice in verse 39, he tells us, do not resist an evil person. Oh, you just read that at face value and you go, wow, what? what? And so it's important to recognize what he's not saying here in the, in the passage. He's not saying that we aren't to resist evil and evil people. Of course we're supposed to. 
We're to hunger and thirst after righteousness, he told us in the Beatitudes. He told us that we're to be salt and light in the earth. We're to be active influence against, uh, against evil in, uh, in the world. And so we're to, uh, to resist it and, and clearly called to, uh, to do that. So what Jesus is saying is that as Christians, we're not to take the law into our own hands and exact justice personally. Retribution is to be expressed through the legal system of the country that we're in. Jesus is also saying, and this is probably the main point here, that we are not to resist an evil person on his level. We are not to repay evil with further evil. Evil is to be resisted, but we are never to resist to resort to evil in order to accomplish the resisting of it. Once we resort to evil in resisting evil, then evil has won in the situation. And so we must resist evil, but Jesus is saying we must not sacrifice righteousness in order to do it. We must not uh, sacrifice our Christian testimony or witness in order to do it. So under no circumstances are we to cross the line and to resort to evil or to wrongdoing in order to repay an evil for a wrongdoing that has been done to us. And instead, what are we to do? We are to take it to the courts or leave it to the highest judge of all, the Lord himself, to do what is right in the situation. And Jesus, again, Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 12, he brings this out. Additionally, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things on the sight of men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He goes on and then declares, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil is to be overcome by good, not with more evil. And it's a very, very good word for us as Christians. Being come, being. Uh, overcome with evil as a Christian is a very real danger in this world, especially as the world becomes more hostile to Christians and especially as it becomes more and more evil. And as the world becomes more and more evil, the greater the temptation to come down to its level, and we must resist it. Have you ever felt the desire to come down to the level of the world to exact revenge for something that someone has done to you. You ever felt that? Lord, forget I'm a Christian for five minutes. Would you forget that I'm a Christian for five minutes? And we feel it. This isn't just some abstract thing. And if we, we forget Jesus' teaching here, in 90 seconds we can destroy our Christian witness by coming down and saying, I'm going to repay, I'm going to come down to this person's level. You think I just got saved out of the pumpkin patch? You don't think I don't know how to shoot a gun? You don't think I don't know how to fight? You don't think I don't know how to get in your face? You don't think I don't know how to use a system to steal all of your money away from you? You don't think I don't know how to play the game you're playing with me better than you know how to play it? We all know the emotion of it. And Jesus warns us, against doing it. No, no retaliation 
because it's not worth marring our Christian witness. In verse 39, Jesus instructs us on how to respond to insults that are uh, given out to us. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him uh, as well. Jesus is not saying, is not referring to being punched or a physical beating. So somebody comes and they punch me and they hit me on the right cheek and I say, is that all you got? How about one for this side, you know? And then he punches me there and and, uh, see how much uh, we can take. God isn't, Jesus isn't calling us to be somebody's uh, punching bag. Not only doesn't that do us any good, it doesn't do any good to the person who's meeting out the beating upon us. I like the story and, uh, of the man who was doing some open-air preaching in Ireland. And uh, the gospel was being preached, and as it was being preached, uh, it angered a man who was in the crowd. And he proceeded to come to the front, and he threw a punch at the preacher, and it kind of grazed the preacher's uh, left cheek. And, and the preacher tried to calm the man. The guy wouldn't have anything to do with it. And he proceeded to throw another punch, and it landed solidly on the preacher's right cheek. And after which the preacher took off his coat, he rolled up his sleeves, and he announced... I will now take things into my own hands as the Lord gives me no further instruction. And uh, so is Jesus saying we get to deck him after two punches? How cool would that be? It's right there in First and Second Fleshalonians. Now what Jesus is saying here, for a person to be slapped on the right cheek by a right-handed person would be to be slapped by the back of the hand. So it, it is, isn't done to do physical harm to a person, but to publicly insult them or to shame them. And even today we talk about an, a verbal insult being a slap to the face. That's what's going on here. It is an insult, a public insult of a person. And so Jesus tells us that we're not to retaliate against verbal insults. And uh, the natural response, of course, is, oh, yeah, and you insult me here, and what about your mother, too, you know, and we're going to head off into the whole thing and, and heap on another insult. And this isn't saying that when we're insulted by someone that um, we can't then respond verbally. If they've insulted us or they've given a false accusation against us and they're factually wrong in their understanding of what's happening here, we can give them facts. We can address uh, the, the rebuke that they're giving. We're just not to come down to their level and address the situation through responding with an insult. And someone may be tempted to think that we're going to all look like wimps if we act this way in in the world uh, and just stand there and take insults. But we're not just standing there taking insults. It's to completely misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. You see, when they slap you on the right cheek or the left cheek and uh, slap you on your right cheek, and so when they insult you, they've taken control of the situation. But when then you then offer your other cheek, now you've retaken control of the situation. But you've taken, retaken control of it in a way that's a thousand times more powerful than any 
insult that you could have leveled back at them could have had. And you're demonstrating that you're a part of a different kingdom in doing so. So to turn the other cheek isn't to not do anything. It's to do the most powerful thing a person can do in the environment, and that is to take control of the situation in a way that looks like Christ. And the temptation is very strong to come down to their level and repay uh, with our own insult. But Jesus says we're not to do it. We're to resist that temptation It's a very inferior way to handle insults. Instead, we're to turn the other cheek. It's only a very weak person who insults another person in that kind of a way. And the best way to expose them publicly is to just simply turn the other cheek to them and uh, further expose their folly uh, publicly. Now, notice third in verse 40, anyone that wants to sue Uh, sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And so Jesus teaches us how we're to respond to being sued for our tunic. And the situation is this. Someone has taken me to court for my tunic. A tunic would have been an outer garment. It would be the equivalent of, for us, a dress or a shirt or a pair of pants. And so they sue me and they win in the court of law. And I'm not only to give them my tunic, but then give them my cloak, my outer garment. In other words, my my overcoat. Now, you can't take this literally. Otherwise, the man would leave the courtroom uh, naked. And that's not what Jesus is calling to have happen here. Jesus isn't saying that we're to give all of our clothes, our car, our house, our furniture, our tractor, our ranch, our businesses to anyone who chooses to sue us. Again, that would be just to kind of reinforce all kinds of evil in people's uh, lives. And the net result would be that not a Christian would own a single dress or a single item in the, in the whole world. What we have here is a legal action, a lawsuit. And here is a Christian who is innocent of all of the charges, uh, but because of the unfairness of the situation, is sure to lose the case, and he's going to lose his tunic. It's completely wrong. It's completely unfair. Uh, but, uh, but to uh, win that case is lost, to give him the comparatively little thing that he's asking for, you give him the garment, but then you give him a little more, you throw in your cloak. Okay, you sued me for this. I'm going to throw in my jacket on top uh, of, of all of it. And when you throw in your jacket on top of it, you have retaken charge of the situation. When you sued and, got your, and, and he got your tunic, he took charge of the situation. When you threw in the cloak, you retake charge of uh, the situation. And the point is, is that what do we do when our rights are violated? A terrible injustice is about to be done to us. We don't have any control over it. it happens all of the time in this world. It's a very hard trial to be in. And the Lord says, go ahead and give a little extra on top of it and let it be a burning coal upon their heads, upon their mind, and upon their conscience. Again, as Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 12. There are certain things that just simply are not worth fighting for in life because they're not worth losing our Christian testimony over. And I'll tell you, if you've ever been involved in the courts, you know how easy it is and what a great temptation it is 
to throw my Christian witness away and come down to the level of whatever the opposing attorney is doing and ask my lawyer to do the very same thing. It's a very messy field. It's a very ugly field, in, uh, even in a country that prides itself on trying to keep the system as, uh, as uh, honest and free of corruption as possible. There is, it is a funny thing about court cases and things like this. The, uh, the tremendous pressure or influence it puts upon us, the temptation to go down the levels that we would never otherwise think of in order to win my point. And uh, Jesus says nothing is worth uh, doing that uh, at all. So when we find ourselves in those situations, there's something more important than our values, uh, material possessions, and that is our Christian witness. And then he speaks there in verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus, of course, ministered at a time in which Rome ruled the ancient world. And a Roman soldier had the freedom to go up to any citizen in the Roman Empire, but this application is in in Israel, and tap his spear or uh, tap his sword or whatever on the shoulder of, of you while you were walking down the road, and that was a signal that you were to carry or to assist them in something for a distance of one mile. It was the right of Rome. And so maybe they had their gear that they wanted to have carried, maybe their armor they want to be carried, maybe some load that they want to be carried. They tapped three or four people on the shoulder, and now it's going to be carried. They could demand that you would do it. As a, a citizen within Rome, you had to do it, and then, but only one mile. You didn't need to do it another mile. Well, this really graded on the Jews because the Jews considered the Romans to be an occupying force. So this wasn't just about being like free labor for some Roman soldier. This was a thing of these occupiers are in our land and now they're going to humiliate us in this way as well. And so there was a lot of kind of hostility toward this right of the Roman uh, soldier uh, here in all of this. And Jesus teaches us, that in these kind of situations as his disciples were not only to do the one mile, but then volunteer to go the second mile. See, the Roman soldier, in compelling me to go one mile, he has taken control of the situation. When I then volunteer to go the second mile, I have retaken control of the situation, but in a way that looks uh, like uh, Christ. And so you go the extra mile with him. Make sure that you share the gospel with him when you go the extra mile and uh, why it is that you're living the life that you are living. But, uh, again, this is to go way, way beyond an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is to go into the realm of grace. And then finally here he talks in verse 42 about uh, addressing giving and borrowing, generosity. Jesus isn't saying that we're to give anything and everything that we own to anybody and everybody who asks uh, for it. And so if someone asks me for money and they're going to use it on drugs or alcohol or to engage in some kind of sin or darkness or whatever, then it's going to be completely wrong for me to give that uh, to them. And so I wouldn't do that. 
He's not, isn't saying that we're to lend to anyone and everyone who wants to borrow from us. The Bible says that if a man won't work, then he shouldn't eat. And so you got a guy, he's just a slacker, and he's not willing to work, and he's got a video game control in his hand for 18 hours a day, and the rent's coming due or the whatever's coming due, and he doesn't have enough milk, and he wants to borrow money from, you know. Listen, the solution is to get rid of the control of the thing and get out and get working and like everybody else has to do. And so it, it doesn't mean that, that uh, we lend to anyone and everyone. That's not the point. But the point he's making is that we do have to be careful as Christians not to use those kind of people or those kind of illustrations that I've just given here as an excuse to never help people at all, to never lend to another person in need at all. And that's a temptation for us. Some of us, anyway. And look, we'll say, well, yeah, you know, they're just going to use it all for this and that and, and everything. And yet, right before our eyes on a daily basis, there's a whole world of people in need. Elderly people. Uh, they thought they could live on Social Security by the time this, but who knew they were going to live to be 88? Or a single mom in a situation, the children in that situation. Someone who's hustling and holding two jobs down, three jobs down sometimes. They're all part-time, and this guy's hustling everywhere to keep food on the table and the whole thing, and you know it, and you see him, and you go, wow, this guy, there's not a lazy bone in his body, but he can work those three jobs all he wants, and he's not going to have enough food for that family. So we have to be careful not to use these extreme kind of excuses and then shut ourselves off from looking and being generous toward other people, a whole world of need that's in front of us on any given uh, week, people that are in crisis, people that are in a medical crisis, people that have been laid off. And Jesus is saying that if we aren't giving or lending as a Christian, then we're living too close to an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We're living too close to justice and we need to be more sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our giving and in our lending as a witness to the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so a lot of misunderstanding around those handful of verses there, verses 38 through 42, need to take some time with it. Otherwise, people walk away and they can do some crazy things and misunderstand them. And so I'm glad that we spent the time in it today. Let's stand together and we'll pray.